Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. The year was 2002. She was a freshman in college. I was a wise, older sophomore. (laughs) And the two of us were madly in love. Anna and I had been dating for a little over a year, and uh, so enamored was I with this young woman that all of life seemed to be one obstacle after another standing in the way of times that we could be together. Now, she had made this decision to go to Michigan State University, and I was at a smaller school, Eastern Michigan University. So I would drive back as often as I could, back and forth from Eastern Michigan to Michigan State. And as I continued to do so, when the hours piled on one another, I started to feel this divine calling that maybe it was not God's will for me to be at that college any longer. But instead, what God had in store for me to serve his greater purposes was to be at Michigan State. And it just so happened that that's where Anna was. So uh, the plans were in motion for me to change colleges and to go to Michigan State. But in the meantime, I got pretty good at that drive from Eastern Michigan to Michigan State. And I thought I knew it really well, and I knew exactly how long and specifically how much gas it would take to get from point A to point B. Well, one night, um, I stayed as late as I was able to, and then headed off for my lonely life back at the dorms at Eastern Michigan. And I got into my vehicle and realized, ooh, that's not a lot of gas. But I know this trip, and I know this vehicle, and I know how much gas it will take. I didn't. (laughs) So off I went, driving back, and about three quarters of the way there, there was something that happened when I pressed on the gas pedal, which had never happened before. Nothing. There's a scary feeling when you press on the gas pedal and nothing happens. So I coasted as long as I could, got off on an exit ramp, and... um, thinking there will be a gas station. There wasn't. And it was uh, early, well, late at night. Um, So eventually my car just stopped. I prayed. Nothing happened, or so I thought. I got got out and thought, okay, so this story is going to date me just a little bit. So this was before the time of cell phones. So you're thinking right now, well, the answer is just get out your cell phone and like look for a gas station or call someone. But that was not an option at this point in history. So uh, I got out of the vehicle and just started to walk. I guess, well, I'll find something somewhere. I had no idea really where I was. I had never been off on this exit before. But thanks be to God, a beautiful, wonderful police officer came by. And he saw me in my distress and weakness and had mercy on me. 
And he actually went to the gas station and got uh, enough gasoline to fill up my quarter, uh, my tank, uh, quarter tank's worth. Now, responsible college student that I was, I drove off and got gas right away, right? No. That was enough to get me by for quite a while. So I then pushed it until it was on E again, but that time I made it to the gas station. It's a frustrating experience to have everything that you need except for one thing. To have like a fully operational and working vehicle, but no gasoline. That one thing that's missing can ruin the whole thing. This morning, we're going to continue in our series, Equipped. And I'm going to do my, my best to give a Valentine's Day message. I've, I've entitled my message, Equipped by Love. God has given us, in Romans 5, everything that we need. He's equipped us. And we'll find that he's even given us the gasoline which makes the sanctification machine run. And that is the love of God. Now, we can break up the passage into three sections. Uh, verse 1, in which we find that he has equipped us with peace. Uh, verses 2 to 4, when the theme there is hope. We're equipped with hope. And then in verses 5 to 8, we are equipped by love. Now, in the first verse, we read that God has given us a very important piece of equipment for life. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've ever had a falling out with someone with whom you care deeply, you know how important peace is. Now, believe it or not, there are times with that same wonderful woman that I just said I was deeply in love with, that sometimes things are not going well. And people say that you're not supposed to like let the sun go down upon your wrath, quoting Ephesians 4. I tried, it just doesn't work sometimes. And sometimes the conflict will remain on into the following day. If the person is important enough, it doesn't matter how well the rest of life goes. If it's burrito day, or there's a great discussion in class, or everything else is just wonderful, but if things are not right with someone that you care deeply about, it's all for nothing. There's this principle that the more important the person, the more important the peace. Well, we're told here that we have peace with God. To really grasp the significance of this, you have to remember how important it is to have peace with God, to remember how desperate our situation was. We were God's enemies under his judgment. Romans chapter 2 describes it as being under his wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. To be released from that, to be brought into a place of acceptance where there is peace is the greatest release possible. I love the words of Horatio Spafford, my sin, oh the bliss, 
of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Or when Paul quotes David in Romans 4 in the previous chapter, O the blessedness, or literally, O the happiness of the man whose sin is forgiven. To be at peace with God really is to be at peace with life. So we shouldn't think of being at peace with God as like, now there's one less person in my world who's mad at me. Instead, to be at peace with God is to be like on the right side of history, to be on the winning team. It's it's like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, Who can be against us? If you get it right here and this relationship is good, well, then what else can go wrong? If you really do have peace with God, then all the other dominoes just fall over. This idea of the importance of having peace with God will get fleshed out more as the text progresses. Uh, We read in verse 2 that... Through Jesus Christ, not only do we have uh, justification and peace, uh, but we also have access into this grace. I love that expression. We have access into this grace. That little expression there points us forward and backwards. When you have access to something, it's like you've got a, a... a passcode or a card or something that will unlock a door, and now you can enter into this room. You have access to it. You were at one point forbidden, you couldn't go in there, and now you can. We have access into this grace. Now, he uses that pronoun there. It refers backwards to uh, the mention of grace in chapters 3 and 4. Paul has just got done. He's just finished describing how our justification is all by grace. A few famous verses. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 4.4-5, to the one who works, the payment is not of debt, but by grace. Or, I'm sorry, to the one who works, the payment is not considered grace but debt, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is considered righteousness, and so on. So chapter 5 describes how this grace was not exhausted in justification. You still have access to it. And the way in which you still have access to that grace is not like every now and then, just in case you get in a tight pinch, Just as a safety net, you know that God's grace is always there. So we shouldn't think things like, we had this mountain of sin against us. And God in his unlimited grace just said, I'll forgive you the whole thing, but just this once. Don't ask for me to be gracious ever again. Nor should we think of it as God was that gracious to us, and in case we really blow it, we can run back to his grace. That's not the line of thinking. Paul says we have access to this grace, and and the benefit is that we go in there, and that's where we, what? In which we stand. 
We live there. This is where we are expected to live our lives. And rejoice. Not only do we stand, but we sing in it. And we sing about the hope of the glory of God. This expression, the glory of God, uh, occurs in a very famous passage. You remember any, like, anybody here do Awana? One of the first verses? What first comes to mind? Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's teased with this idea that there is this thing called the glory of God and you're not getting it because of your sin. But that's all before the gospel. Because of the gospel, now we rejoice in that expectation of the glory of God. Paul will talk about this more in in chapter 8, what he means by the glory of God. It is to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul Paul is talking about the final significance of humanity to rule over creation in fulfillment of the calling God gave to Adam. This is why I said earlier that peace with God is not simply simply a matter of fighting with one less person, but it's to be put in the right place in the universe. So far we've seen that God has equipped us through our justification for peace, Rejoicing in the future, and yet this has significant implications for the way we live in the present. It equips us to rejoice also in hardships. Now, he uses just the general word, uh, depending on your Bible translation, something like tribulation or sufferings or hardship. It just means when bad things happen. And as such, uh, it's a fitting description for any problem that a person might be going through. So if you try to make plans with your best friend and he's busy doing something else and you're disappointed, like my little boy was yesterday, that counts as the hardships of life. If you are persecuted for your faith in Christ and thrown into prison... Well, that counts too. If you go through terrible tragedy, things that uh, you never thought that you'd have to go through, that counts as well. Paul described it in Romans 8 as uh, the groaning pains of creation, the result of just living under the fall because things are not now the way that they should be. the common lot of being a human being in a broken and fallen world where people die and things break down and hopes are dashed. In those situations, we have a resource. We are equipped. We can sing through it. We can rejoice looking forward to what God is going to do in the future. Now, it might be at this juncture that you're thinking, you know, that sounds right, and that sounds good. 
And there are times in which I've gone through difficulty and disappointment. And maybe you felt like you put the key in the ignition and you've turned it and it just went You know the things that you're supposed to do, and you've even heard stories of people who have gone through great hardship, and so they took it to the Lord in prayer, and they were able to rejoice in their hardships. But when you go to do it, nothing happens. In those situations, it won't do to simply say, now cheer up. Don't be, don't be depressed. Nobody likes a negative Nancy. Just trust in the Lord, it'll all work out okay. Romans 5 isn't a full diagnostic of every possible situation, so I don't presume to just throw a blanket answer on everybody who's listening. And yet, from the perspective of someone who's expositing the text, I can't help but point out that Paul anticipates these sorts of issues. He says, and our hope doesn't disappoint us. I like how he just throws that in there because sometimes it seems like our hope does disappoint us. In fact, I can't help but wonder if um, we should bring in verses like chapter 7, verse 18, where Paul communicates his own struggle. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to do it. I mean, I want this car to go. I want the sanctification to work. It just doesn't. Why is it that Paul says, um, or what, what is the answer? Why is it that our hope doesn't disappoint? What is the gas that's in the tank? Well, look at the great word there in verse 5. It is because. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The answer has to do with the Holy Spirit. This is why the whole process works. He's going to explain to us the way that living in grace really works. And it goes hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. The answer is not so much a procedure or a set of doctrines, but it is a person. I hope that you know a lot of things about the Holy Spirit, but that you also know the Holy Spirit as a person. I hope that, you, that the Holy Spirit for you has like a tangible, apologetic, persuasive role in your life. That's the premise of so many verses in the New Testament. Like in Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The premise is, I know God's at work because of the Holy Spirit. And you can't tell me I don't have the Holy Spirit. That would be ridiculous. It would be like, maybe there are some people out there who enjoy these sorts of arguments like the earth is flat or we never landed on the moon. Let's say you decided to pick a fight with me, and you said, I don't think you're really married. 
It's all smoke and mirrors. And let's just say I was having an off day and I couldn't come up with a reasonable response to convince you why you were wrong and I actually, and I couldn't produce the legal documentation and I couldn't win the argument. You're still not gonna persuade me. And even if my wife weren't in the room and it had been a long time since I had seen her, I have a relationship with her and you're never gonna convince me that I'm not married. And in the same way, I can't see the Holy Spirit. And I might not be able to persuade you that I have the Holy Spirit. But deep down, you can't tell me I don't have the Holy Spirit. He's there like a magnet drawing me to the person of Jesus Christ. And there are so many things that I just cannot explain if it were not for his presence in my life. I wonder, for example, why is it that of all the billions of people in the world, throughout history, throughout space and time, I have devoted so much of my time and energy and labor to think about one Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet who died at an age that's younger than me. Why do I wake up and think about him? Why do I go to sleep thinking about him? Why do I talk to him throughout the day? Of course, I'm aware that there are historical reasons in my Christian upbringing and things like that. But the only satisfactory answer that I can give for why Jesus means so much to me is that the Holy Spirit is there. And he makes the love of Christ real. Notice that's what Paul says. He says it's the Spirit's job to to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. In the present tense, again, another famous Awana verse, Romans 5.8, often gets misquoted. Notice that Romans 5.8 does not say God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No, no, no. No, 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 no. What does it say? It says God demonstrates his love toward us. It's in the present tense, which fits the whole idea of what Paul is saying, that the Holy Spirit is actively communicating. It's like the Holy Spirit is pouring out the love of Jesus. In fact, it's interesting that that word poured out is actually the word shed, to, like to bleed out. Like when Jesus says in Matthew 26, 28, this is the blood of the covenant shed for many. The Holy Spirit's job is to take what happened at Calvary as Jesus shed his blood for me and in a way shed Jesus' love onto my heart. It is a love that transcends all other kinds of love. Paul explains this. Scarcely for a righteous person will one die. Perhaps 
For a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own strange love towards us this way. You know, it's so easy to think like our first parents, that God is holding out on us. It's tempting to think with omnipotence at his disposal, this is the best God could do. Anna and I have a broken boiler at our house. We had some people come out and look at it. And um, it turns out to be an expensive problem to have a crack in the block of your boiler. I don't suggest making this mistake. But we prayed. I prayed, Lord, could you miraculously, would you please miraculously heal, fix that boiler? It didn't work. Hmm. Or to think, we can have all the fruit except for just this one? Why not? It may be that there's something better in mind, and God is holding back. And when we're tempted to think things like that, God could have done better. Maybe he's just unconcerned with these circumstances. Maybe this is beneath him. Maybe he doesn't really care. Is God really on my side or not? Can I really stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Paul's answer is a resounding yes. And the reason is the cross of Jesus Christ. For him, for Paul, it changed everything. Now he knew that God was for him. What greater evidence could there be that God was on your side than he died for you when you were his enemy? And so he challenges us with things like Romans 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your love, and we pray for your help that we could say like Paul, I am persuaded 
that nothing can separate us. And how was he so persuaded? How did he come to this firm conviction? We read about it so clearly. It's because the Holy Spirit got a hold of him. The Holy Spirit spoke into his heart. And as Paul thought about Jesus on the cross, he realized that it was for him. Christ died for us. This great supernatural love that excels all other loves equips us. It gives us the strength that we need so that when, when we are tempted to think that God doesn't really care or that you must not be watching or we wonder if these things are really true, we are persuaded by looking to the Lord Jesus. As we sang earlier, we cast our eyes to Calvary where Jesus shed his blood for me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work which you accomplished for us. Thank you for that love which you demonstrated at the cross and which the Holy Spirit still demonstrates and pours out to us the same love that you had for us 2,000 years ago is the same love that you have for us in 2022. Thank you that this is a love that does not disappoint us and will never let us down. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu partner.